Epiphany Fellowships podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Amen. 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 desperately stand uh, in need of your spirit oh God man apart from your spirit oh God we can't do nothing apart from your spirit we can't see you we can't repent of our sin there's no conviction of sin apart from your spirit we can't experience the beauty and the glory of your God, many of us are hurting in so many ways that I can't even begin to compute. But it is only by your spirit where you're able to meet us. You're able to fill the voids, the gaps. You're able to touch us in ways, Lord, that we've never been experienced or been touched before. That is so comforting and so nurturing. privilege and an honor to be with you this afternoon if you can be seated for a brief moment <laughs> I plan to do that lady Tani I plan to do that a privilege to be with y'all this morning as y'all can see I haven't been here and why <laughs> I busted up my ankle a couple of weeks ago and um, you know here I am I missed y'all I haven't been in the gathering so it's good to be in the company 
of my brothers and my sisters in the faith. And I've been given this task, this privilege of being able to proclaim God's word, and I want to do so. So um, we're going to jump in. Um, we're going to read James chapter 4. Y'all can be seated. So James chapter 4, starting from verse 1 through 10. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. The title of our text today that we're going to be going to travel through is uh, it's called The Roots. The Roots. The Roots. I like that title. I think of the, the hip hop group. That's the, uh, you know, I think they're the greatest, one of the greatest groups that, uh, you know what I mean? Amen. I got an amen in the back. I got an amen. You know what I'm saying? But um, we're going to see how this title is further unpacked and exposes some things. There have been some wars since the beginning of human history, creation, right? Wars are horrible. We all can attest that wars are tragic. Wars are destructive, right? It's costly, damaging, damning even, right? Somebody loses, somebody wins, everybody loses across the board, period, right? But all involved, they lose to some degree or another. Oftentimes, civilians, the citizens of a particular region or a demographic, wherever war may be taking place, they're the ones who tends to suffer the most, right? Reason being is because the impact that it has on their location, the economy, the sounds of bombs dropping, the whiz of bullets flying through the air, decimation of buildings, structures, historical landmarks, the displacement of millions upon millions of families who end up either seeking asylum abroad 
or in other surrounding territories, either near or far. But where there are other, where there is war, there are other potential horrors that might be birthed as a result of this war or wars. Some of those things could be war crimes. If you're in the military, war crimes that are directly perpetuated by a a tyrannical dictator, the leader, or you have a regime of soldiers that abuse the opportunity to exploit those that are being warred against or that they're warring with, right? They unleash, they tend to unleash upon those who are incapable of defending themselves devastation, enslavement, rape, pillaging of people and their goods, property damages. For example, you take a look at what's going on in the Ukraine. Just as an example, I ain't trying to make no point. Russia's leader is seeking to occupy those surrounding territories that are in proximity to its borders, right? But it doesn't only just affect Ukraine. It's affecting the other surrounding nations that is in proximity to Ukraine. Their safety is in threat. But not just that, the war is taking place in the Eastern Hemisphere, but here it is, we live in the West. And it has devastating impact on on our economy, our resources, the stock market, the cost of gas. I remember once upon a time, gas used to be a buck fifty. We will never see them days again, ever. Some places, gas is $6 and change a gallon, right? The cost of goods, raw materials. Right? All these things are impacted because of these wars. You know, there's always been the philosophical question about evil in the world, and if so, why? Is war considered one of them? I would nod yes. But this, has been, this is a unique thread that has been stitched and woven into the very framework of our culture, of societies in the world that we live in. Yes, I would say war is evil. However, it is a necessary evil to maintain safety and protection for a particular region, for our own country, maybe rescuing and aiding another, or even seeking the interests, our own interests on behalf of others or, you know, along those lines, right? But wars are necessary. The term war refers to a battle, conflict, right? It denotes either military conflict or a general state of hostility, right? Antagonism, the word is most frequently used to denote a literal, like literal warfare. Military conflict on a national or international level. Sometimes it could also be attributed to spiritual warfare that which takes place between God and the evil one, right? Of particular significance is the figurative language of the word war here in James chapter 4, verses 1, which denotes to the strife that exists among Christians or those in the community of faith. 
The origin of such strife is understood as the passions and lusts that battle inside of a person. It is here that we want to direct our attention and our focus upon. So my first point that I want to address today, pull back the veil and identify the source. Pull back the veil and identify the source. James the Apostle, the half-brother of Jesus, also known as the one who was one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He begins this chapter with a diatribe, right? What I discovered in my studies was that a diatribe is a dialect, uh, is a form of dialect or uh, um, a form of teaching in which the teacher would proceed to reveal knowledge by means of question and answer to its students or its audience, right? Hence why you say, hence where you see, he asks the question, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from within your passions, right? He does so to educate students or his audience by exposing erroneous conclusions that could be drawn from a certain teaching or lecture to his audience, right? Where he will give a stark contrast by giving a sharp, emphatic no. Like your, your conclusion, whatever it is that you had, whatever it is that you perceived, is wrong. He starts off by raising the question, like, what is the source? What is the source of dot, dot, dot? When he's speaking of, the, like, when he's asking this question, like, what is the source? It's pointing to where is this coming from? He's not pointing to, like, a literal global war, but he's pointing, like, what is the source? Where is the origin of these things come from? James is pointing to not a literal war, but those even though there is, there is war within the globe, but this war, this, the beef, the tension, the friction, the hostility that, that, that he's speaking of is figurative in language, right? It's figurative and it's pointing to another greater issue, that war that emanates from within. He's speaking of, he says, don't they come from your own passions? When he speaks of passions, like what does he mean? And when he asks this question, first of all, he's addressing the covenant community. That phrase that speaks and points to the proximity, the location of the local assembly and even those who are gathered and scattered abroad, right? The community was mentioned and, mentioned and discussed in the previous chapter last week when Bishop Pastor Mac, uh waxed eloquently as well as the rest of the elders in weeks previously they've done such a colorful and glorious painting a mosaic of what God is trying to convey the Greek word for passion is hedon hedon it means pleasure enjoyment of oneself this points to everything that is desirable and unredemptive and pertains to the lust of the flesh. It's where we get the word hedon or hedonism from. Where we get the word hedonism, which points to everything and everything that resolves in you just soaking it up, enjoying, basking in your pleasures at whatever expense, right? 
Having read this passage, you know, what came, what came to mind, I automatically thought of, you know, Bishop Paul, the Apostle Bishop Reverend Paul, <laughs> right? <laughs> I thought of him because in Galatians chapter 5, he elaborates the contrast between the fruits of the spirit versus the fruits of the flesh, right? So if you want to know, if you're ever in question, if you're ever in doubt of what does the fruits of the flesh looks like, what does hedonism look like? Let's take a look at what Galatians 5 has to say. The flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are in opposed or opposition to each other so that you don't do what you want. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, that covers everything under that umbrella. Moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, beef, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. In case I left something out, anything similar covers all of that too, right? Because you know how we do. We like to be really literal. Well, it didn't say X, Y, and Z, so maybe I can dot, dot, dot. Nah, that covers that too. Now, even though this list that I just read is not exhaustive, right, but it covers a wide range of things. Though James and Paul, they're both titans in their own right, right? Because both James and Paul, they're unique because James was the half-brother of Jesus. The dude didn't believe that his brother was the Messiah. I probably wouldn't believe he was the Messiah neither, but he didn't believe him until his brother appeared to him post the resurrection. Paul didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah neither. He was about the law until, the, until he had a run-in with the Lord himself on the road to Damascus. Knocked him off his, his beast. Right? Here Paul goes in and he says, For although those who live according to the flesh, they have their minds set on the things of the flesh. Now, real quick, people often, like, you know, in, in commentaries and in um, 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 historical data, they were saying that, you know, many people tend to presume or think that Paul and James oppose each other, right? But they don't. Their, their, their heartbeats are the same, and they're in unison. Hear what Paul says. He says, for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those, who's, who, those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Now, the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the, of the spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot, will not, is incapable of pleasing God. Your flesh cannot please and appease a righteous father, a righteous God and king. And there's an entourage of other passages or scriptures that I would not bore you with this morning. You can search the scriptures and do your due diligence. So... We're going to continue moving forward. The B portion of, of verse 1 where it says, uh, 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 
verse 1 where it says that wages war within you. James here describes what and where the primary source of those conflicts, where do they come from, right? Those scuffles, those addictive slave-like tendencies that you and I may wrestle with or have a twitch for. You know, you presume to think that it believes that it comes from outside of you or that maybe, man, somebody else is the source of the problem. If they would stop doing X, Y, and Z, I'd be all right. But now nah, the issue is really you. It's really you and me. I got the same issues. I was wigging out last night. My kids was just not letting me do what I wanted to do or what I felt like I needed to do, and I wanted to black all the way out. And I needed to call on a ghost. I did. As God is my witness, I did. Here James is referring to the members, your body, your flesh. When that thing rises up inside of you, like it's like you almost feel like you don't have no control, right? This is the very thing, the very core of your being that is plagued with sinful desire, your lust. That is the very source of your issue. James already gave voice to this earlier in chapter 1 when he says, man, each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own sinful desires. So if you ever feel like a twitch, like something, just know that it's coming from you. Like check your heart. Look introspectively, right? I want to read this quote, the lust of the flesh, it wars, it wars violently against the soul. It abuses your affections. It abuses your perspective to carry out the rebellion against heaven, everything that is divine, holy, and righteous. This is what our sinful desires do. I hear the Apostle Paul echoing in the halls of, of, of antiquity um, in the commentaries of Romans 7. <laughs> if you ever want to know what your passions look like, that, that crazy tension, hear what Paul says. For in my inner self I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the works of my body waging against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Jesus says in Matthew 17, it's not, what, it's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth is what defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth, it comes from the heart. When I speak of the heart, when Jesus speaks of the heart, he's not talking about that organ, that thing that pumps blood in your chest where your right and your left arteries are that tend to get clogged up when you eat too many cheesesteaks or food or whatever the case may be. But he's talking about that thing, the center, the core of your existence where your soul resides, your passions, what drives you, Right? From out of the heart, evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immoralities, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things that defiles a person. Eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile a person. There are many who would like to have you think or perceive or believe that eating certain foods is what makes you unclean. Nah, bro, it's your heart. It's your heart that makes you unclean. Point two, my second point, check your heart at the door. 
Check your heart at the door. I think of my children, whom I love so very much. <laughs> now, for those who are parents or those who have been parented, y'all know how we can be, you know, when, uh, you know, our kids come to us and they, you know, they ask us for something and we tell them, no, you can't have that. Or how we've been, how we respond when we say, we've been told no, something that we really desire and really want, we tend to black out. We tend to go from zero to 100 real quick. We tend to have meltdowns. You know, little kids, they throw temper tantrums, face turn flush red, start grinding their teeth, and all, and all of that. But we as adults, we do the same thing. We just, <laughs> let's keep it a buck. You know what I'm saying? Like, we do the same thing. We ask God for something, and God tell us no, and we black out, right? The tantrums that we throw, the attitudes that we catch, how bitter we become. Angry, covetous, demeaning, a sense of entitlement, feeling like I'm obligated to have this. You better get this to me, right? These things betray us for it reveals exactly where your heart and your idols really are. This fixed position and heart posture has crept into the community of faith and has become normalized and stems from bitter envy and, and selfish ambition. Again, Bishop Pastor Mark banged on this last week, chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, right? This shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't, as believers or as Christians, should be identified as those markers. Jesus says that this is how the world would know that you are my disciples, by your love one for another, right? It's for this very reason when we conduct ourselves out of envy and covetousness, when we act out of those dispositions and those postures, the name of Jesus is blasphemed among the heathens or a, 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 amongst those who don't know who Jesus is or those who are skeptical of who Jesus is, right? What typically follows when you can't get what you want? How do you know, how do you act and behave? I don't want you to answer that. I don't want you to embarrass or incriminate yourself. Rhetorical, food for thought, just to think about, right? What follows when you can't get what you want, right? James is, James is telling you straight up, this is what happens. You display acts of violence. You display acts of violence. Upon who? But towards those that oppose you and those that tell you no. That's who you act violently against. You can't get what you want, so this is the outpouring of your unbridled affections and your unbridled desires. Look at Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, first two brothers on the planet, God asked for an offering, or they both gave offering. God accepted Abel's. God rejected Cain. Uh, um, Cain, was in his, Cain was in his feelings. He didn't like what God had to say. He didn't like that God rejected his, his offering. Therefore, he was throwing shade on Abel, was jealous of Abel. He was envious of what Abel had. And God told him, he says, yo, man, you know, sin is crouching at your door. Check that. You know what I'm saying? And you'll be all right. 
No, nah, what, what did he do? He lured his brother. Yo, homie, let's go, let's go for a stroll. Let's go see what's going on over here on this part of the garden. And murdered him. The first murder that was recorded in human history was by his own flesh and blood. This is how we act and respond to one another. Not just as family members, biological, but spiritual brothers and sisters. Right? Murder. The word murder means to kill with intent. That's exactly what Cain did to his brother Abel. It is, ultimate, it is the ultimate thing that anyone can ever do to an image bearer because they're envious and covetousness, because they're envious and they're covetous and their needs go unmet. Or what they perceive as a need goes unmet, right? Let me ask you this question. Who have you murdered today? Many of you may think, well, man, I never, I never shot, I never, I never, you know, clobbered anybody over the head with a brick or shot or stabbed anyone. Let me come right down your street. Jesus says, you heard that it was said, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. John, the apostle, the one who loved Jesus says, if you hate your brother, and your sister. Murder is in your heart and you do not have eternal life. So even though you've never, you know, literally bodied someone or put up someone in a body bag, Jesus says if the hatred or the feeling that you have is so visceral towards them within the very core of your existence, it's equivalent and it's on par with committing murder. If you verbally assaulted them and ripped them apart, there's a passage in that same passage where Jesus was saying, he says, if you, if you call someone a fool or says raka, that was an Aramaic term of, of, um, of degradation, right? Like you want to defile someone, it's, it's the Aramaic version of the most vulgar expletive that you can think of in the English vocabulary, which I am not going to re-utter up here. <laughs> it's on par with that, Right? A quote, it is unusual for human anger to be free from mixed motives and not to be in some sense of self-avenging. James 1 says, the anger of man does not bring forth the righteousness of God. It's not that there's anything wrong with being angry. Anger is a part of the human expression. It's a part of your humanity, right? However, when you and I get angry, our anger is always tainted by sin. And because of that, it mars any and everything that we do. Now, is it possible that we can still have righteous indignation? Absolutely. Right? But for the most part, when we get angry in our flesh, all we want to do is just is destruction. There's nothing helpful, nothing productive or redemptive about our speech, about our heart, about our attitude or how we behave towards others or one another. Coveting. Coveting is another expression of you see something that somebody has and you want it for yourself. Right? No, I'm sorry. I stand, I stand corrected. 
Envy is see something that somebody has and you want it for yourself. Coveting is, I'm going to get that. I'm going to take that. And I'm doing it by force. I don't care what I got to do to you. I don't give a rat's behind about you or your feelings. I want what you got. I'm going to take it by whatever means necessary. That's what it means to covet. And we do that and it comes from our hearts. After all of this, right? You still haven't obtained all what you wanted. Why? You know, when my kids come to me, and I think every adult should maybe might feel this way, but when my kids come to me and they, they, you know, they tell me they want something. What? You want? Yeah, I want this. I want that. Give me this. Give me that. What? You better ask. You're not getting nothing until you ask the right way. What's the right way that daddy or mommy has taught you how to ask? Which leads me to my next point. Where are your manners at? Where are your manners? Where are your manners? Right? Has God taught you how to ask? Yeah, he has. In case you wasn't clear, God has taught us how to pray. Well, ask. And that's how we ask through prayer, right? James and Paul, before James and Paul, Jesus taught his disciples to ask for whatever they wanted. This is done through prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened. For everyone who asks will receive. When Jesus departed, his departure was so significant for his ministry because he had to send the spirit, right? When he sent the spirit, he said that when we, when we pray and we ask and according to his name, he will grant it. When we ask according to his name and to his will, he will grant it because he promised. But clearly what Jesus had in mind was that asking, when we ask, when we pray to ask, was to focus to shift our focus and our motives on God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, God's passions, and God's desires. So, again, God wants us to come to him with all of our heart's desires and our wishes, etc., etc. But the things that you're asking for, are they in alignment with God's will? Are you praying and asking God, Lord, I hate X, Y, and Z, I hate such and such, I want you to, I, I, I want you to wipe them out. Take them out, body them for me. <laughs> bury, their name under the, bury their name under the earth. Don't let any of their kids experience any of your love and your compassion. <laughs> Amen. Listen, David prayed prayers like that back in the day. However, I'll say this. If that's where your heart really is, God welcomes that prayer. To him. That's where you should wrestle with that type of prayer with, though. Before the Lord. God wants to nurture you and shepherd you through that. If those are the genuine, authentic type of aggressions or whatever it is that you might be experiencing or feeling, God welcomes that. But God isn't necessarily going to answer those prayers. You know what I'm saying? 
Let me ask you this question. What does your prayer life look like? What are the things that you're praying for? How are you praying? What are you praying about? Are you praying about that long-awaited thing that you've been waiting for anxiously that God has not answered? It doesn't necessarily mean that it's not in God's will. It very well may mean that it may not be in God's will. But are you praying? What do you spend time praying about? Do you pray about your will being done? Or are you beckoning the throne of God by the power of the Holy Spirit? Not my will be done, but what is your will? Are you really about that prayer life for real, for real? Are you really wanting to submit and align your heart with the heart of God? Oftentimes we don't because normally when you go for an alignment, that means that something is out of whack and something needs to be straightened. If you're driving your car down the street and your car is swerving to the left or swerving to the right, you might need to go get an alignment so that whenever you drive, you take your hand off the wheel. If that thing keeps going straight, you know that your car is cool. If it veers to the left or veers to the right, you got a serious problem, right? That's for your safety. That's, that's for free, <laughs> right? James and Paul skillfully build upon this theological idea about Paul, about prayer, right? Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7. Through prayer and supplications with praise and thanksgiving, make your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will give you peace. God desires for you to come to him with everything in prayer, Right? The Apostle John, he quotes this, and he says in 1 John 3, 22, well, I'm going to say from 21, Dear friends, if our hearts condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. This is not an exhaustive list, of course, but, you know, we can possibly conclude that there is prayer, one, prayer that is genuine, redemptive, that brings about regeneration, and there's other prayer that's counterfeit and whitewashed. Verses four through five, James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies it so intensely? Here the tide shifts when James addresses the covenant community, which would appear brash at first hearing, right? You hear the word adulterous. Could you imagine somebody coming up in, in here at a piff and just calling everybody adulterous? That wouldn't go very well for them. That w it wouldn't. It wouldn't be a good look. Right? So here he is saying this was a label of old in the Old Testament. Typically what happened in the Old Testament, God would normally send the prophet or the man of God, the man of God, whoever he was, 
and he would make an appeal to the conscience of his people because of their idolatry. God who had revealed himself as, as Yahweh, Lord, the Redeemer, who preserved and protected, comforted, and provided for his people time after time. He delivered them from, from, from Egypt. They cried out in bondage. He delivered them. He preserved and protected them for 40 years in the wilderness. And they murmured and complained. And they wanted to go back from, they wanted to go back into slavery because of minute challenges. They started following the, the surrounding nations and their, their religious practices, right? God revealed himself to them as a husband, according to Hosea chapter one, verse, uh, chapter one through chapter three. They kept running off to foreign love interests, those that were surrounding the nations and their practices as mentioned. By them doing so, they automatically aligned themselves with the world and everything pertaining to it and by the way how they do things. What is friendship with the world looks like? What is friendship with the world looks like for us in our generation? Do you and I align ourselves with the things of God or do you align yourself with the ways of the world? How has some of the ways of the world subtly crept in into your heart, into your practices? Do you truly believe that the Lord God is one or do you think that you, it's okay for you to burn sage and pray to your ancestors and seeking the horoscope for what your future is when God has already given that to you what are some of the ways that you know like 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 what is that corporately but also on a personal note how do you do that If you were to be placed in the world, would the world accept you as their own? Oh, that's my man's in them. That's my girl. We hang out all the time. Or would they reject you and spew you out because there's something just emanating from you that's just different? Jesus says they would embrace you if you belong to them. They would, they would accept you in a heartbeat. But because of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the work of Jesus, they would reject you. Jesus said a slave is not greater than his master. The way that they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. Are you being persecuted? Have you been persecuted? Or are you accepted by the masses? Are you accepted by the world, by the societal norms? Food for thought. In case you didn't know, I'm going to just put this out there. If you have been born again, if you have indeed been born again, regenerated and filled with the Holy Spirit, are genuinely a part of the community of faith, you call God Father, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price far greater than silver or gold with, precious, uh, with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. That's what you've been paid for. Therefore, you are to honor and worship and glorify God with your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Who? Not a what. The Holy Spirit is not a what, but he's a who. He's a person. And he rightfully claims ownership over your entire existence. 
For it is he that has sealed you by his own markings. You belong to him and he belongs to you. Assuming you indeed belong to him. That you have rightfully responded to the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Therefore come out from among them and be separate says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing. I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's how we're to be marked and to be identified. We're called to be in the world, not of the world. Verse 5, now, real quick, in my studies, it was noted that verse 5 possibly may be one of the most challenging verses for interpretation, right? So, it's, this, is what, this is what I have, right? It's not clear whether James thinks of the spirit which he made to dwell in us as the Holy Spirit that was given to us as believers or as God's creative spirit when he blew breath into, when he created Adam and he blew breath into man from the very beginning and man became a living being, right? That spirit in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 we're not sure if God's creative spirit by which he invigorated mankind. Either way, in either case, this particular phrase reminds us that God has made a claim on us by his very virtue and by the work that he has done and accomplished in us. First, he created us. He owns us, point blank. Two, the work that he has done in us through his son and he deposited his spirit in us as a promissory note by that and then by that alone god owns you you and i do not have the right to do what it is that we want we don't own ourselves many of us if not all of us want to have a sense of autonomy i do what i want i decide what i want I decide what my, my gender is or whatever. I ain't aiming for nobody, but I ain't trying to miss nobody either. James thinks of the spirit which he made to dwell in us as the Holy Spirit. Oh, I read that already. All right, all right, all right. So my last point, my last point. This is my last point. I'm going to get out your hair. Last point, reassess, recalibrate, and rightly respond. Reassess, recalibrate, and rightly respond. Verse 6, but he, free, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But God's grace, but God's grace, God's grace Listen, y'all, like God's grace is a gift to both you and I. God's, gra God's grace is a gift that we, that I, have to continuously learn how to accept, how to unpack, 
how to bask and how to relish in. God's grace is a conundrum. It's a quagmire. It's a mystery to unpack and to unfold. It's, it will take an eternity to understand God's grace. But his grace is powerful and sufficient, adequate enough to meet the need of overcoming sinful desires and to meet the demands that God has placed on us to submit to him. It says that God resists the proud. To resist means to stand in opposition, to strong arm. God will stiff arm you. God stiff arms with violence. The proud. He rages and battle against the proud. However, his grace and his measure upon the humble, those who rightly exercise humility, those who see themselves rightly, accurately in light of who he is and who they are not. God calls for us to humble, to make small. It means hupotasso, to fall in your rank, to come under, to submit, to bow down to, to humiliate yourself, right? However, in this passage, this is pointing to the submission of God, being contrite, being broken about one's sin and the desire for atonement, having a heart posture and disposition towards rightly submission to him. This is where the gift of grace can be rightly be appreciated and to be savory for us by rightly responding and submission to the gospel and repenting before the Lord. Verse 7 through 10. What does it look like for us to resist the devil? What does it look like for us to resist the devil? Are we intentionally willing to choose to submit to surrender to the lordship of God through Christ and walking in obedience to him? Are we directly walking in the antithesis or of the evil one, the devil and his authority? Are you submitting yourself to God's word? Are you digesting the word of God? Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Beginning to think and have the mindset of God. Are you spending time in prayer? Are you, are you immersing yourself in community amongst God's people? God has created us to be interdependent upon one another and to link arms with one another, not to be in isolation. God has called us the body of Christ. I guarantee you, naturally or spiritually, somebody hack off a part of your body, a limb, the rest of the body will drastically suffer. You will manage, you'll get by, you'll compensate, the body will compensate, but it will never be the same if the whole body was made a whole. You isolate yourself from one another. We do ourselves a disservice. We do harm to one another. God has called us to be dependent on interdependent, linked up with one another. Being in hot pursuit of him, right? Being filled and being led by the spirit. When you have that kind of spiritual octane, the enemy don't want no gas. He don't want no smoke. He can't mess with you. He easily has to back off because you're in pursuit of those things of God. However, that's when you're being consistent. But in your inconsistency, at that opportune time is when the enemy will pursue you like a gazelle. And walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom it is that he may devour. 
So application-wise, how do we go about doing this? What does it mean for you and I to draw near to God? First, to begin with, as I've mentioned, repent. Repent. God is calling you and I to repent. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time event. It's a continuous, ongoing process. Yes, it's something that took place once upon a time, but it has continual, ongoing effects. Intentionally and practically begin burning those bridges of any and all kinds. Now, when I say burn those bridges, what are those things that tend to bog you down, that keeps you pursuing other things other than God that are sinful? And or even some of those things that are not necessarily sinful, they're not good or bad, they just be indifferent, but it doesn't make the most of you or your time. What are some of those things? Right? Anything. Jesus says, the hand that sins against the body, chop it off. Jesus doesn't want you to castrate yourself, but Jesus is saying, I want you to take extreme measures, extremes to walk in holiness and to pursue me. What do you need to do in order to take extreme measures to pursue the Lord wholeheartedly? That's the question that's on the table. Jesus says, uh, uh, Jesus says uh, wherever the treasures of your heart is, that's where your treasures are. Like, what are, what are the treasures of your heart? What are those things that you, you hold dear to the most? Is it God? Is it the things of God? Or have there been other things that have crept in that steals and robs your affections? Verse 9 and 10, and I'm done. Verse 9 and 10, where James is saying, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. This points to Old Testament verbiage where the prophet of God will call the people to lament and to mourn because of their sin. The people were, were whenever, whenever, they would, whenever they wanted to repent and mourn, they would take off their garments and they would put on sackcloth and ashes, put on potato sacks and throw ashes over their face, over their heads to show their countenance and their, 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 their prostration before the Lord, before God as a form of repentance. We ain't saying that you got to do that today. Jesus did that, so you don't got to do that. But what do you need to do in order for you to lament and to mourn because of your sin? This points to your brokenness, your disposition of one's heart. This is matched and accompanied by outward expression as well as the fear of God's judgment and wrath coming upon you. The, toy, the, 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 the term, you turn from joy to gloom, mourn now. He says mourn now so that you don't have to mourn later. Repent now. Repent now. That way you don't have to mourn later. If you don't repent now, sad will be your portion. Esau, I think of Esau. Esau begged for begged for his father to, 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 to bless him after he recklessly threw away his blessing. And there was nothing that he can do, no amount of tears that he can cry, that would be able to get his father to give him a little something, something. It was, it was a wrap. 
and verse 10. Respond in obedience to the gospel. Ain't deep. I'm not going to be deep. I'm done. Rightfully respond to the gospel. Respond in obedience to the gospel. Repent. Believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin. Lay low in heart before the God of heaven. Grace is found at the cross. Now, you may either be a person who straddles the fence, who's double-minded, who likes to have their foot in the world and tinker with God. God is calling you to repent. Maybe you're a person who don't know who Jesus is. Maybe you don't know who God is. Maybe you have a form of religiosity. Maybe you know all the things pertaining to scripture, but the scripture has no residence within the very core of your existence. The Bible calls for you to examine yourself and be sure that you're of the faith. Again, respond in obedience to the gospel. Restoration, compassion is found there at the cross. Genuine saving faith, salvation and forgiveness of sin is found there at the cross. It is there and it is there where truly exaltation is found. That's all I got, y'all. That's all that I got. I'm, I'm just being frank. That's all that I have. So... I don't know, I don't want to be presumptuous in any way. In some degree or fashion, I know many of us, all of us have straddled the fence, one degree or another. I don't want to assume that everyone in this room um, is a born again believer. Some of you may know all the things that you need to say. You may look like a Christian, you may look religious, but God is far from you. There are many who would say, the Bible says, Jesus says, there are many who would say, Lord, Lord, we did X, Y, and Z in your name. And the Lord would say, depart from me. I, I never knew you. I don't want to assume that everyone is covered under the, the blood of the lamb. Maybe you might be here today and you've never put your confidence in Christ. I want to extend an invitation to you and for you, for you to come and know this Savior, this grace that we've been talking about, the root. God wants to get at the root of the core of your issues. And God wants to draw you to himself, lavish upon you, grace upon grace. Is there anyone? All, all eyes closed, head bowed. Is there anyone? Maybe you've been, you know, Maybe you are the adulterous one. You've been playing with God, committing spiritual adultery. I want to call for you to repent. I'm going to just pray for the entire church because we all guilty. I'm not even going to single anyone out, but we all guilty. But if there's anyone who want to put their confidence and faith in Jesus and they would like to inquire about these things upon which we discussed talk with any of our leaders that are present that are around but I invite you to trust in Christ for the forgiveness and the atonement of your sins makes you a new creature make you brand new now we're going to transition to another aspect of our worship which is communion 
Is there anyone who does not have the cup or the elements? This part of communion is significant for us because God calls us, the Lord Jesus, he calls us to, re, to, to be reminded of this every time we gather together. The Last Supper points to when Jesus, the night before he died, this was the inauguration of the new covenant and the work that is continuing to have its working effect in our hearts and in our lives. Taking this does not bring about salvation it doesn't make you acceptable in God's sight by any stretch of the imagination. But this, this just points to what Jesus has done for us. We can all stand. On a night that he was crucified, well not crucified, the night before he was crucified, he said to the disciples, every time you gather together, you take this in remembrance of me. This is for my body that was bruised for you, that was broken for you. Let's take, let's eat and remember. This cup points to the precious blood, the blood of the lamb that takes away the sins of the world that was shed on Calvary to make us right with himself. Jesus told the disciples, I wouldn't drink this with you now, but upon the time when we gather together in eternity, every time we gather together, let's remember what Jesus has done. Let's drink this together. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we bless you and we thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your strength. We thank you for communion. We're able to gather together on the same playing field. No one is greater than the other. No one is better than the other. We're all on the same playing field, equal before you. We bless you and we thank you for your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. We thank you so much, oh God. We love you and we worship you. May our hearts be thankful. May our hearts reflect on your graciousness. You humbled yourself to the point of death, dying on a rugged cross, taking on the guilt of people who rightly deserve to be condemned so that we can be made to be drawn near and to have communion, the right to be able to have communion with you. God, I bless you and I thank you for such grace and mercy towards us bless your people today we love you we thank you we worship you in Jesus' name amen i'm gonna give you the i'm gonna bless you with the benediction and we we ghost all righty give me a second guys bear with me i just had it all right now may, the, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase in overflow with love from one another, for one another, for everyone, just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. All the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. 
Amen. 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 God bless you. Go in peace. Have a glorious weekend. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you.